Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we have a wonderful guest from Kids OR, and that's Kids Operating Room, and it's Gareth Wood, who is the chairman of Kids OR. They do what it says on the tin. They, they build uh, operating rooms across the global south, if you will, or actually low and middle income countries. And, uh, and we're going to learn about the work they do, how they not only get the equipment there, but also what sort of uh, training might you need on the ground, what sort of resources, and how do you create an environment that's uh, sustainable for the long term as well. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, the mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, it's a pleasure to welcome onto the Do One Better podcast, Gareth Wood, who is the chairman of Kids OR, Kids Operating Room. So Gareth, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks, Alberto, for having me. Great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for making the time. Why don't we find out a little bit about Kids OR, Kids Operating Room? What's it all about? Well, I think you summed it up beautifully. Um, our core business really started as an organization that built uh, operating rooms right across low and middle income countries. The first one was in Uganda in 2015, and Uganda had 21 million children. They had one pediatric surgeon for the entire country, uh, John Sekabira. And John was able to access an adult operating room one half day every two weeks to operate on children. So that was a a place that wasn't suitable for children's surgery um, with operating with adult tools on very young and very vulnerable and sick children. So we saw the transformation in, in, in really just supplying um, a safe space and the right tools to do their job. And it was transformational for children's surgical services in Uganda. And, and you know, we now have five operating rooms that we've built in that country, uh, a surgical system for children. And it's been a huge success within that uh, country. John's gone on to train four other surgeons with him. And now the surgical service and capacity for surgery in, in Uganda has transformed. And we've taken that model, that kind of pilot model of um, what we did in Uganda. And we've now operating across 20 countries where we are building these centers of excellence for children's surgery, dramatically increasing capacity for surgery and access for safe surgery. And we're doing it in government hospitals, creating safe space and the right tools and the right trained workforce, local workforce, to care for their own nation's children. When we set out Kids Operating Room, we were acutely aware of, you know, historically, um, we've relied heavily on surgeons and, and doctors and nurses to fly in from Europe, from the UK, from North America. So that has sadly kind of created a dependency on foreign aid 
And we set out Kitsawara really to invest heavily um, in surgical healthcare systems and also the surgical workforce. So our operating rooms are state-of-the-art, all brand new equipment filled with highly trained surgical teams, um, including uh, biomedical engineers. And um, by creating this capacity for a local workforce to care for their own children, um, we've dramatically reduced waiting lists for surgery. We're now operating across 20 countries. And just last month, in the end of December, built our 50th operating room in Ghana. Wow. Um, and that was a real milestone for us. So very, very exciting. Congratulations. How did you come about this? So are you uh, a medical professional? Are you, um, wh what was it that triggered uh, in Gareth this desire to create this uh, kids OR? So it's a, it's a good question and it's not a simple answer. Um, we, I, I've been involved in philanthropy since the last 20 years and had worked for my family foundation that was started by my father, um, which was involved around tea farming in Kenya. And I mean, I was interested in the work, but it wasn't something that really um, floated, you know, got me up in the morning I was passionate about. But my wife and I, Nicola, had a number of setbacks having a family. And through my own philanthropic work and, and the work we were doing as a couple, we'd been supporting a few local children's charities up in Scotland. One of them was actually one called Archie in Aberdeen that looked at improving um, the journey to theater for children in the northeast of Scotland, investing in um, children's services and everything else. And the, the first project in Uganda was actually brought, I was a patron of the Archie Foundation and, and, and giving money to that organization. And the CEO at the time, David Cunningham, uh, approached me and, and suggested that we might do a partnership, an absolute one-off operating room in, in Uganda. And this was that very first one we did with John Sekibira. And Nicola and I got to see just how, well, first of all, you know, our children had survived because of surgical intervention in this country. They had received, one of our children had received the best. We, we also lost children through surgery, but we, throughout the whole process, we, we received the absolute best of care through the NHS, the best consultants, the best surgeons. And, and I guess we'd taken that slightly for granted. And through our work with this, what was going to be a one-off operating in Uganda, I got to see a world whereby really people struggled to access surgery. Um, I, I just assumed accessing surgery was a basic human right. And I had no idea that five times more children die from a surgically treatable condition than HIV, malaria, and TB combined. You know, and, and just this massive unmet need for um, safe surgery. So we were really quite taken aback by that. Um, and while our children had the best of care, we understood as parents what you go through when a child is sick and the absolute turmoil that causes um, not just the parents, but the wider family, the siblings, grandparents, etc. Everyone's affected by it. So we just, um, we fell in love with John Stekabir in Uganda. We fell in love with the idea that, you know, we could, create real impact and change um, and we could see a huge difference from a fairly small uh, investment and we came back from uganda having done that one operating room and we did a second one now at the time i was an entrepreneur running a pub company um, and owned multiple venues across scotland and i was quite excited about the thought of scaling up um, it was in my nature to take something that's 
works, that um, can make money, that can create impact and scale that up. And I could see how we could, having done two operating rooms in Uganda and, you know, barely scratched the surface, how we felt we could um, scale this up, create, you know, we put money in to start with, but beyond that, we knew that I could get donors to come on board to support the work we wanted to do. And really, it was just, it became a no-brainer. We had to do it. And I sat down with David Cunningham, who was the CEO of Archie Foundation at the time that we had, um, I had been working with, and Nicola and said, look, you know, if we're going to do this justice, I need to sell my company. You need to come and work for me, David. And uh, we need to do this full time. And, and, you know, in four years, we have, you know, built now 50 centers of excellence across um, Africa and Latin America. So yeah, it's been, an, it's been a real journey. But um, currently, I still don't know any other organization established at the moment that's investing in pediatric surg surgical services and that's very much focused on um, driving um, capacity for surgery for children. So it's, it's, it's been a lot of work, but very exciting. Mm. And what's the whole ecosystem look like? And by that, I mean, what are the moving pieces, the variables, the things that you need? Because I can, on the one hand, sort of visualize an operating room. And then I guess we go a little bit step a step further. If it's a kid's operating room, you want it to be aesthetically, you want it to be a reassuring setting where maybe you might have mm. uh, images on the wall that are pleasant to kids for kids. Um, you got to have the human capital. You got to have the medical professionals. You got to have the uh, uh, somebody who's going to repair the machines if they if they break. What are all the moving pieces? Because I imagine there's quite a few different facets to this. It is, and traditionally surgery has not been something that you know international donors have focused on because it's very complicated and it is expensive. I think we've broken that myth um, when we started we set out to build operating rooms. So identifying pediatric surgeons, existing pediatric surgeons. And we were quite focused on Africa to start with. And then really it was giving them the safe space, the tools and support to do their job. But actually we found out fairly quickly that, that there aren't that many pediatric surgeons across Africa, mm -hmm. local surgeons. So the rate limiting factor was human resources. So we could keep building operating rooms, but we needed to now you know, the first hurdle really was we needed to move into training pediatric surgeons. So we successfully launched the first scholarship program for pediatric surgery in Africa. And that's done in conjunction with Oxford University and with um, the, Royal, the, the equivalent of the Royal Colleges of Surgeons we have here, Casexa and WAX across West Africa and East Africa. And um, now actively have... Um, a large number of, of, of scholarships um, of, of doctors currently training to become pediatric surgeons. And when they train and when they successfully qualify, they, they, we will invest in a pediatric operating room around them. We work with, um, I think it's really important, our, our model works directly with um, ministries of health within these countries to support their healthcare system. So our operating rooms are built inside government hospitals. We do tend occasionally build um, infrastructure and build big operating rooms, but we prefer to build operating rooms within existing hospital space. And then um, you're right, um, we absolutely need to make it feel and look like a pediatric operating room. So we spend a lot of time, I mean, if you've looked at our website at www.kidsor.org, 
you'll see the incredible artwork work that we use on on these rooms. I think twofold why that's important. One is it makes it look like a pediatric operating room, and I guess you know the risk is that other surgeons within a hospital might come and borrow the the space for their own for their own work. So we purposely make it look very very child friendly and very much market as a pediatric operating room. The second side to it is that children in Africa, it's, it's slightly different. Um, when children have operating, operations in the UK, we tend to um, put them under with, with anesthetic with the, child, with the parents in a separate room. Um, the child won't often be awake at all in an operating room. But you'll find in many countries across Africa, the children are taken from the parents in a waiting room and taken to an operating room still awake and often anesthetized on the table. So that journey to theater is important. Anything we can do to help calm um, a child who has just been taken off their parents, clearly an upsetting experience for a lot of children. So we try and create this wonderful experience, not just on the walls, but you know what the surgeons are wearing and scrub caps and their gowns and sure. try and make them look as um, welcoming as possible. All the support around, so, you know, we've got a safe space, we've got talented teams working in them. We've got our equipment that we supply, which is all brand new, but clearly over time will need to be maintained and serviced. So we provide um, a full service to continue supporting the, um, the equipment, um, whether that's uh, replacing or repairing equipment. We have trained biomedical engineers to support the work we do on the ground in, in the countries that we operate in. And we have a unique, um, quite a unique thing whereby also we have a fully, here in Scotland, we have a fully equipped state-of-the-art operating room with uh, video conferencing. And often these machines that you see, you know, it breaks my heart, but you see these equipment graveyards in Africa and, and in other countries. Um, and often the machines just, you know, a broken fuse or a light bulb, something that's very easy to fix or a filter that's not working. And what we can do is um, we will be able to sit down with our biomedical engineers if they're having problems fixing a bit of equipment, we can video conference in front of the exact same piece of equipment here in Scotland and talk the biomedical engineer through um, how to fix that equipment, what parts might need to be ordered. And as I said, if it's something very complicated that can't be fixed, then we replace. So. Excellent. Really fascinating stuff. And how do you make sure, I mean, you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, I think you... You want to train the local workforce. You want it to be um, sustainable. How do you ensure that those um, medical professionals who you who you train up actually end up doing the work there and not migrate to Canada or or the UK? You know, it's it's again, it's a really good question, and a lot of people talk about the brain drain that happens. And clearly, we're investing large sums of money in. in the three-year training program of a pediatric surgeon from a general surgeon. And it's a, it is a good question to ask, it is a risk, but we haven't lost any surgeons because of that. And I tell you why, I think the perception is that a lot of these people leave for, um, a lot of these people leave because of the money and they're lured to Europe, North America, the UK because of that. But Let's go back to John Sekabiri, who I spoke to at the start. If you're trained to be a pediatric surgeon or you qualify to be a pediatric surgeon, but you don't actually get to work, or if you do get to work, 
you get to work in an operating room that's not suitable for pediatric surgery or it's not the right equipment. I mean, we still have 12 countries in Africa that do not have a single pediatric surgeon. So when they qualify and we give them a state-of-the-art operating room, I mean, these people are so passionate about their country, so passionate about helping their people, so passionate about what we do, so that when we provide a state-of-the-art operating room where they get to come in and do their job, I mean, that's all they want to do. They get to do their job on their own people and they're saving lives. And I think that is more than enough incentive um, that we find that the surgeons that we train, the surgeons that we invest in, um, are staying. And, and as I said, we haven't lost anyone. Hmm. And how do you figure out where the need is most pronounced? And I guess also just it would be useful to have a little bit into the sequencing of things. So um, do you find the need on the ground, then train someone, then put the operating room? Do you do these concurrently? And presumably, I guess, to, to maintain your sanity, you can't just set up one operating room in one country and another one in another country, or I guess you'd have a, you'd benefit from some scale to to have multiple rooms in a specific country. So love to find out about that. Yeah, of course. And, and you're absolutely right. Um, it's relationship building, Alberto, for much of it. And, and we do that with ministries of health. We sit down with them and we say, first of all, you know, how can we help you? How can we support children's surgical services in your country? And you're, you're absolutely right. Building one operating room in one country and leaving is not the model. Um, it's identifying where we can build an operating room within a country that's going to have significant impact. And then once that happens, start to look at other areas within a country where we can build on and um, continue. You know, obviously, you know, the rate limiting factor, as I said earlier, is, is the surgical team um, to support an operating room. But where there's willingness from government um, where there's willingness from donors to invest in that country and to support our work then it's the right thing is to build um, multiple operating rooms within a country within a hospital even you know we we do have some of our operating rooms there's three or four in one hospital because um, the demand is so high um, so yeah it's it's a system that starts off with conversations with ministries then with directors of hospitals, what they need. I think it's really important that we don't just build an operating room that's standard. I think we sit down with our hospitals, with the directors, with the surgeons, say, what do you need? What are you capable of using? You know, I think we're very strong on doing no harm. So it's making sure we don't put equipment in surgeons' hands that they're not ready to use. So often a basic operating room, which has over 3,300 pieces of equipment in it, um, we may build that first, and then we may train a surgeon to start using laparoscopic endoscopic equipment, which they might get on year two. Um, really, every hospital is different. Every country is different. But we are um, actively working with ministries. Um, I think a lot of damage has been done historically by organizations coming into countries and not sitting down and just asking basic questions like, what do you need? What do you want? How can we improve your surgical services? How can we improve your healthcare systems? And that's really something from day one, we wanted to respect um, the people on the ground, respect the countries and have a dialogue of how can we help you. Mm. And the operating rooms themselves, uh, how long does it take to set one up and how much does it cost if there is such a thing as an average price tag? When, when, when we finally sit down and decide with the hospital board, 
with the directors and with government to say, this is what you need. This is the equipment you want. It takes us um, a little time to procure the equipment. And then shipping is the kind of longest part of the journey, about three months. So we ship every, we procure everything into Scotland where we um, pack everything, ship it from the UK. Um, so that, that, that takes three, four months. Um, and there's not so much an average price tag, but if, if we're looking at an operating room that requires a full training of a surgeon as well, as well as, as, well as the equipment, um, we're training surgeons, anesthesia providers. Um, sorry, that's something I've not spoken about, but clearly within a surgical team, we need anesthesia, anesthesiology and, and um, providers of that. So it's, it's around the half a million dollars for one operating room. It's a lot of money, but when you look at the economic impact, I think it, you, know, you can look at the impact on a child and the positive impact on that child's life by receiving surgery. But what's, some of the figures we have are staggering around also the economic benefits. So when we sit down with ministers and say why they should be investing in children's services, if you look at the economic benefit on a country of a child who spends their entire life with disability versus that of a child who is able to contribute to the country as they grow up, um, the figures are quite staggering. Um, we've already provided almost $2 billion of economic benefit for our partner countries um, through the work that we've done to date. Um, we launched at the World Health Assembly in 2019, a 10-year program to build 120 operating rooms um, across Africa in the decade of the 20s. We're almost, we're past the halfway part, part of that. And that over 10 years will create um, 10 million years of disability prevented. And that's $28 billion of economic benefit for an investment of around um, $65 million. So, you know, these conversations happen and it's important to, of course, focus on the direct impact on children and families, but it's also important to highlight that this is a very sound investment, that this makes sense investing in surgical services might just be the greatest investment we can make in healthcare in these countries. Mm. Are the funders, uh, are they diverse? Are they purely monetary? Do some people provide funding uh, through medical equipment or how does that all work? What does it look like? We've got a number of funders um, and partners that we work with. We work with SmileTrain, um, which is well-documented and a number of other organizations, and, and they're very generous in supporting the work that we do and allowing us to do what we do. As I said, Nicola and I put in the initial seed funding to fund Kids Who Are, about four and a half million dollars. Um, but we always intended that to for Kids Who Are to become independent, to rely on donor income um, to, to do our work. And you know, a large part of my time is spent um, donor relations and, and trying to speak to people and advocating for um, investing in surgical services for children. And, and, and yeah, I think it's something that's ignored for a long, long time or forever. So, you know, really starting these conversations with the right people, getting them to see the benefit of investing in children's surgical services and the long-term outcomes for countries, the positive outcomes for countries is, is kind of my full-time job. Myself, David, um, Nicola, we spend a lot of time speaking to people and, and telling them about what we do. Um, and the first three or four years has been about telling people who Kids Who Are is. And I think we've, we've getting to a stage now where we've moved from telling people about who, what Kids Who Are is and really 
why they should be investing in, in children's surgical services, why it's so important that we don't forget children when we're looking at healthcare systems in Africa, why it's so important that we stop sending um, surgeons from the UK, from North America into Africa to do this work, when really there are hugely talented people in these countries, brilliant doctors, anaesthetists, nurses, biomedical engineers that just need um, the support around them to do their job. And something as simple as giving them the right tool in their hand to perform an operation on a child seems very simple, um, but it's working. Yeah. And it's having a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal impact. Yeah. What are some of those main lessons that you've been, uh, that you've learned? What are the, what are some of the things that uh, you didn't know a few years back that you've, you now clearly do know? I think, I've never been one for having a huge amount of patience. My wife would agree with that. Um, I think you need to be patient. I think uh, things have been done the way they have been done for a long, long time. And although I'm 100% convinced that the way we do it is the right way, it's difficult to persuade those in power and those who have made these decisions around how to fund healthcare for decades. Um, it's difficult to change their minds. Um, you know, the Alma Atta Convention in 1978, the year I was born actually, talks about health for all. Um, you know, and and there have been challenges over the decades whereby um, priorities have been given to high-income countries when it comes to healthcare over low-income countries. The AIDS pandemic at the end of the 1990s, for example, and even now we look at um, you know the way that vaccines have been handed out around the world. High-income countries have received these first, so. I get really frustrated at, at how healthcare has been funded. Um, the issues around, <clears throat> you know, creating dependency on 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 foreign aid, and I'll continue to preach to anyone who's willing to listen about why that's not the right approach. Um, so yeah, I, I have to I have to learn to have some more patience and 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 realize that these things take time. But you know, at the same time, my lack of patience has built fifty operating rooms in four and a half years. Um, we've scaled up our organization hugely. And, you know, I guess as chairman, I've, I've only got really two jobs. One is to make sure I pick brilliant people and that we don't run out of money. So I feel that, you know, I'm, I'm getting better at those two things, <laughs> finding really good people, and I'm getting better at telling people to give us their money um, <laughs> and, and why they should give us their money. And, 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 and bringing them on the journey with us. You know, I think that's also very important that people see, you know, philanthropy is great. You know, you can write a check, but there's nothing quite like that whole touch, smell, feel philanthropy. So I'm always telling people, come with us, you know, previous to, prior to the, the pandemic, I was always saying to donors, come with us, come and see how your money is being spent. Come and see the children and the parents who are impacted by the investments. Um, and, you know, I think that's a, very powerful thing that all donors should, all donors should try and do um, as much as we love checks being written I, I love it when um, they, they buy into the entire program and they and they want to come and see how what the impact is and yeah how they're creating incredible change in the world I mean patience is a virtue but a healthy sense of urgency is a good thing when you're dealing with the subject matter at hand Absolutely. Here's here's a question. So, you know, normally the UK government would be quite supportive if you're exporting UK goods and services elsewhere. Um, 
have you uh, are you in touch much with the UK authorities? Do they help you sort of navigate the waters a little bit and try to get things done um, wherever it is you're operating? Well, splitting that question too, well, I'll come to the UK. The Scottish government has been very supportive of what we've done. Um, and, and we've helped to support the, the, the pandemic, um, you know, the work that they've done during the pandemic in terms of shipping out um, oxygen concentrators, anesthetic machines and PPE. So we, we've shipped over 25 million pieces of PPE and a few million pounds worth of, um, of uh, uh, PPE equipment. Uh, for Scottish government. So they've, they've been very supportive of our work. And I think we've now become a trusted par partner um, when it comes to supporting their um, international responses, especially in the countries they work in, in Malawi, Rwanda, and Zambia. UK government, we approached just before the pandemic, um, but we hadn't registered two, set, two years of financial accounts at that point. Um, and that's a very basic barrier we just need to get through, which we've now done. And we are just now beginning to have conversations with uh, UK government um, around how they might be able to support our work. So great. I great. mean, we're very hopeful that, that will they will see, you know, we've got good contacts and good relationships with the UK government. So we hope that that will help in our in our conversations over the coming months. Mm. And so you've 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 locked in 50 operating rooms and congratulations on that. If we're looking at the next 10 years, what uh, what would you hope to have achieved by then? If you and I are having another podcast around uh, around 2030 or so. Well, I'll put it in the diary for 2030. Put it in. Put it yeah. in. Um, I, I, uh, it's, it's a good question. We will have finished our 120 centers of excellence by probably 26, 27, 2026, 27, ahead of schedule. Um, as I said earlier, that's creating, that's, that's 10 million years of disability prevented and um, over a million children who will receive surgery. Right now we're operating on around 35,000 children every year. Beyond that, those 120 centers of excellence will only have scratched the surface within Africa. So we're, we will continue to focus on um, the next 120 operating rooms in Africa. We have just finished uh, a research piece on how do we do what we've done in Africa in Latin America. And our approach will be to invest first of all in Bolivia and then beyond that right across Latin America with a very similar approach to what we're doing in Africa. Very different um, geographical um, places, uh, continents, but um, both have major issues around children being able to access safe surgical care. And just before the pandemic, we were also, we did a, a very ambitious trip around Southeast Asia where we took in 14 countries in 12 days and met with a number of government officials in each country. And um, the need there is just as much. And um, before the outbreak in Myanmar, we had planned a, our first operating room in Southeast Asia. So we, we have operating rooms built in Haiti, um, Peru, Ecuador at the moment, and we were going to build in Myanmar just before the political unrest and the coup that happened there uh, last year or the year before last. Sorry, um, so that put a, a, a stop. And 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 we we won't ever put people at risk. Security remains probably our biggest issue um, 
when it comes to investing in countries. And sadly, a country in many countries across low-income countries, middle-income countries can be quite stable for periods of time and then become quite radically unstable. So that's a situation we continue continue to monitor, you know, concerning news coming out of, you know, Kenya, Cameroon, Sudan, and, you know, these places already where we have operating rooms. So we just got to monitor that and keep an eye on that. But our, our plan is global, domin global dominance. We want to be the, the world's leading um, uh, builder of pediatric operating rooms and investors in people and, um, you know, surgeons, anesthesia providers, biomedical engineers, nurses, right across low middle income countries. Mm -hmm. uh, key takeaway? Key takeaway for our listeners before we wrap up, is there one thing that you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Yeah, well, thanks for listening to me rambling on for 30 minutes. That's, <laughs> that's been nice. And obviously, thanks for having me today and for allowing me to talk to you about our work with yeah. Kids Operating Room. Um, I guess my key takeaway, I've covered it, but I guess my key takeaway would be that I hope your listeners might take a closer look at how they currently or in the future might fund healthcare systems across low and middle-income countries should they choose to do so. Um, you know, we need to ask ourselves, does the way we fund projects and programs create further dependency on foreign aid? Or do we change how we fund things and look to empower people and systems who can care for their own nation's children? Something that, you know, Nicola and I and David, right from the very beginning, just said, if we're going to do this, this has to be our key message. Wonderful, wonderful. Gareth, very, very well said, and I, I wish you... Uh, the best of luck with this uh, this uh, endeavor of yours, and I, I hope you continue uh, making impact across the, the world. Thank you so very much for joining us today and joining me on the Do One Better podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the show. Well, Alberto, thank you very much for uh, having me. I really appreciate speaking to you. Perfect. Thanks so much for tuning in. That's a wrap. You've been listening to a great conversation with Gareth Wood, chairman of Kids OR. Please visit our website at liji.org, that's L-I-D-J-I.org, for information on more than 150 interviews with remarkable thought leaders in the world of philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. Click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Leave us a rating and a review. It makes a big difference. And I'll catch you next week.